Hello, good morning again. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here. This morning we'll be continuing our series of going through some of the parables of Jesus. This morning we'll be in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 12. That's printed for you in the ESV translation, I believe. What is that, page 10? We also have a version for the uh, kids on page 11. And boys and girls, if you want to go to Children's Church, now is the time to do it. I believe you guys are all meeting over there. And I'll escort you over. So for the rest of us, make sure you keep this out. I'm going to be referring to the uh, both passages throughout the service. Um, so everybody's already, already comfortable. I see some blankets out on some people. As you guys can stay seated as I read this morning from Luke chapter 14, verse 12 to 24. He, being Jesus, said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that as we come now to this story, that you would give us truth, that you would change us, Lord, by our encounter with you, by your spirit in this text. We pray, Lord, that you would show us our great need of you and that you would then show us the solution to that need in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as a pastor, I get invited to all sorts of events and dinners by groups in the community, uh, organizations, ministries, charities. And, you know, I, I like a nice slow meal that someone else cooks. And so and they're often free. And so I pretty much say yes to just about every invitation. So often I'll take Nikki. Sometimes I'll take an elder, or another leader with me um, because, you know, why not? Right. And the question I have is, why in the world are these organizations inviting me to, do, to, to come to dinner and, uh, with them? Is it because I'm just such an important person? Is it because I'm just such a great guy? Is it just because, you know, my effervescent personality just brightens up any room? Okay, yeah, exactly. You should be laughing at all of those things, right? Yeah. No. Because they want us guests to sit through a presentation. And then they want me to influence you to give them money. It's a good way to fundraise, actually, because the guest sort of has this like 
understood debt. Hey, we gave you a free meal. You need to like pay, pay that back, right? We gave you hospitality, so you should kind of give something back by talking about our organization at your organization so we can get some money. And that is right where our passage is today. Jesus is at a dinner party. And right before our passage, he, has, he watched all the guests jockey for position for the best seats. Each seat actually signaled a rank, and people are always trying to get the best one. And he confronts them about it. He actually bucks their system. And now he's going to go after what we commonly would call the good old boy system. It's the system that got stuff done, that made some people feel superior to others, like insiders, and some people feel like they weren't an insider, that they weren't enough. And those who were on the inside, they looked at their status, and that's what made them feel enough. This was a party that Jesus is at of insiders, the connected people. And those who were outside, who weren't connected, they were outside the party. They weren't invited because they didn't matter. And these folk, inside and outside, they knew, they just assumed, they just knew that God had the same opinions of people that they did. They were insiders and they were outsiders. And Jesus confronts that assumption right here, that God favors the right people by reminding them that God actually has a different idea of who the right people are. That gets us to our theme for today. If you're a Bernstein Bears fan, it should sound slightly familiar. It says, we want inside, but Jesus says our inside is so outside, it's upside down. And we'll see that together. So first of all, inside. So verse 12 starts out, Jesus is in the room with the leaders of the community. He himself has arrived on the inside. He should be honored to get this invitation. And he proceeds to look around them and basically say, y'all need to invite some outsiders to your parties. To make sure we understand what's going on here, what's happening here is this party is kind of like the wedding scene from The Godfather, either in the book or the movie. This procession of people comes to Don Corleone to get favors, and he grants these favors, and now they owe him a favor that he can cash in anytime he wants. That's this dinner. The host was giving honor and favor to his guests, making introductions, greasing the skids, doing networking. It's how cultures work, right? So you'd only invite the right people who, you, who could help that process happen. Why is that so bad? I mean, is it really that bad? Why is Jesus confronting this? And here's why. Because that system defined for them what was enough and who was enough and who wasn't enough. It was social bookkeeping. These people had points. These people didn't have points. These were the winners. These were the losers. You earn your place to be part of the winners, part of the insiders through effort and through accomplishment. And here's the really big deal. Here's what makes it so bad. They assumed, even taught, that God related to people in the same way. Jesus comes to this party to announce, no, no more bookkeeping with God. All that stuff is turned upside down. Getting with God is not a matter of what you bring to the table or of what you can offer or what you can do for God. Jesus reminds us that Christianity teaches the only thing we bring to the table is the sin and failure and rebellion that made Jesus' death necessary. That's our end of the transaction. God brings everything else to the table, not us. I want to make sure we're all tracking with me. So boys and girls, if you're still here and not at Kids Church, let's look at your page 11. Let's look at verse 12 through 14 in your version. Here's, what Jesus, here's what's happening. <clears throat> so Jesus said, when you have a birthday party, don't invite only the popular kids so they will like you. That's not really loving anyone but yourself. Instead, invite the weird kid 
the smelly kid, the one you don't like, and the one who everyone makes fun of. And you will be happy because they can't pay you back. But God rewards that stuff. Boys and girls here, especially those of you who go to school, Jesus is crazy, isn't he? You don't invite the smelly kid to your party. You kidding me? And just by the way, boys and girls, if you don't know who the smelly kid is, it it might be you. (laughs) Because there's always one. See, but Jesus comes and he gives this crazy command. And you know what, boys and girls? Here's what's the great thing about Jesus, but about the Bible. When God gives us a command like this in Scripture, it's never by itself. God always accompanies it with grace. He always accompanies it with, I've done something to empower you, therefore you can go. The most famous well-known example of this is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments don't start out with, jump through these hoops and then you get to be my people. How do the Ten Commandments start? They start with God saying, I've already rescued you out of slavery. I've already made you my special people. I've already blessed you. Now, you shall have no other gods before me. The grace comes first to empower the command. And so too with Jesus here. When you, when, when you believe in Jesus, <clears throat> when you place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, he empowers you to be this kind of person who can do the hard things like inviting the smelly kid to your birthday party. Because God rewards that because we're acting like God. Because when God brings us into his family, when God brings us to his party, we're the smelly kid. We're the one who shouldn't be there. And God says, you can come to the party. See, what Jesus says here, if you adults are like, I need something more sophisticated than the smelly kid, please. Okay, fine. To an ancient Near East culture, this is completely counterproductive. They don't do this. If somebody could not repay a favor... You were under no obligation to help them or invite them to anything. It was all of society was a balancing scale. If you can't help me later, I have no moral obligation to help you now. And maybe 2,000 years ago, but we know that impulse hadn't changed that much, has it? C.S. Lewis gave a graduation talk in 1944 called The Inner Ring. And he said this, quote, In all people's lives... One of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside of it. He then poses a hypothetical lament that says basically, you are so busy, you will find yourself so busy with no free time, but trying to have balance in your life and trying to create free time is actually terrifying because you're afraid if I have too much free time, then I don't matter. This is 1944, C.S. Lewis is talking about. Isn't that crazy? Not much has changed. We like to think, though, we have the internet and microwave ovens now. We're much more sophisticated, but we're the same way, right? If we have too much time on our hands, that inner voice questions our worth, doesn't it? Are we busy enough? Are we doing enough? Are we being enough? Why do I have such free time? I'm lacking somewhere. In an article titled, Successful People Don't Sleep, the author talks about how striving to matter and being thought of as successful is wearing us out. I put this on the bulletin front if you want to read along or just listen to it. It says this, it says, This bout with not enoughness is the heavyweight match of the century. We are all beset by the same legacy-lusting disposition that makes us cravers of the something else to fill the gaps in our life. If we can just get more on the inside, if we can just rub the correct elbows, then we'll matter. Then we will feel like enough. Then I will be somebody. I will be an insider. 
That's what Jesus is confronting right here. So one guy, apparently uncomfortable with Jesus' direction, he kind of gets it. He tries to bring it back to something <clears throat> less controversial in verse 15. He, he kind of stands up and basically says, Right, Jesus, God repays us. One day God will throw a great banquet for people like us. You see, there's this ongoing promise in the Old Testament that the Messiah will come in and, off and usher in what's called the kingdom of God. It's a, and the metaphor throughout the Old Testament that was used to teach this was the idea that God's going to come and give them an extravagant feast for all kinds of people, people who aren't part of Israel, people who were rebellious, even outsiders, this great feast. But by the time of Jesus, their cultural prejudices had infected that promise. I want to, I'm going to read to you from a, an ancient Jewish text that most scholars say is probably about the same time as Jesus. He may have even had access to this text. Talking about this ancient promise, listen to what they were saying then at the time of Jesus. The Messiah will gather with the whole congregation to eat bread and drink wine. The wise, the intelligent, and the perfect men will gather with him. They will be all assembled by rank. No one is allowed in who is smitten in his flesh, paralyzed in his feet, or hands, or lame, or blind, or deaf, or dumb. They had taken this beautiful promise and they had changed it to only the perfect people are God's people. Because they just knew that God rewards people in this life. And so if you have a problem, God's getting you. If you're perfectly healthy, God's rewarding you. So we can look at your life and say, you clearly are out with God because you have an injury. You were born blind. Remember the disciples? They see a man born blind and they ask, who sinned, the man or his parents? And Jesus is like, nobody, what's wrong with you? They just knew that God only favored the pure and the perfect. And with that understanding, this guy in verse, in verse 15 stands up and says, yeah, God's going to throw a party for all the people just like us. So Jesus looks at him and says, really? Let me tell you a story, which is never how you want Jesus to respond to you, by the way. <laughs> You're like, okay, I'd rather not. I'm sorry. I <laughs> take it back. So Jesus tells this story of a great man holding a great feast, and he invites all the right people to come, but the story takes a twist. And in his story, the inside becomes the outside. So what's going on here? In a culture without refrigeration, in a culture without supermarkets or butcher shops, there were two invitations to feasts. The first one was several days out, which he responded yes or no, so the host would know how many animals the day of he had to butcher and prepare. Because again, there's no refrigeration. Once you kill that thing, you, the clock starts ticking on that meat, right? So the day of, they would prepare everything, and then once it was ready and hot and ready to eat, then they would come the second invitation to all the yeses. Okay, it's ready. Come on. That's the invitations in this party. These are the second ones. These are all the people who said yes. And so starting in verse 18, sudden all these insiders, those who said yes, start backing out. And in their culture, Jesus makes it obvious that all three make up excuses. Now, I said this a couple weeks ago. I'll make sure you're tracking with me here. Remember... These parables didn't happen. Jesus makes this story up. And here's why that matters. If it's just a historical account of something, and it says he was walking along the road and tripped on a rock, you don't try to find some hidden spiritual meaning and what does the rock represent. It's just a rock. It happened. 
if someone tells a story about that, then you have merit to faithfully come to the text and say, why did he tell the story that way? So we're going to dig into details that Jesus put in here because he wants us to because he made it up for those reasons. Different from talking about history, okay? So just with that caveat. So the first guy basically says this in that culture. I'm going to translate it into our vernacular. He says, hey, I just bought a house by text. I don't know the neighborhood. I don't know the school system. I don't even know what the house looks like. I don't even know what color it's in. It's had no inspections. I need to go check it out. No. And you're like, you've already closed on this house? What's wrong with you? You would know you're lying. No one does that. So too, no one buys a field they haven't looked at first. They haven't looked at, see, how's the drainage? How's the sunlight pattern? Will I be able to grow crops? No one would do that. It's, bla- it's clearly false. It's clearly a lie. It's so implausible, the guy clearly, he just doesn't want to come anymore. Second one. This one's just as pathetic. Imagine you go to a community group meeting, and the host stands up and says, hey, anybody want some free padlocks? You're like, what? He goes, well, I just got 10 random padlocks from a, a neighbor, and then I went on Craigslist, and I bought 10 random keys, so let's put them together. Everybody's got, everybody's got a free padlock, right? And you're like, uh, no, Isaac Newton. Um, those things have to like, match together. You can't just pick a random key. Duh. And so, too, you never, ever would even bid on a set of oxen unless you had watched them plow together because they had to work as a team, or they wouldn't work at all. So the idea of someone already purchasing without having, without having looked at so ridiculously false, so implausible, clearly to the original hearers, this guy just doesn't want to come. Third guy, it's not about a recent marriage. In that culture, married men did not talk about their wives unless it was a very formal, dignified manner. So the way he kind of just throws this out there, here's how a long-time Middle Eastern missionary put it. He says this, he says, this third guest is very rudely saying, I have a woman in the back of the house and I'm busy. Don't expect me at your banquet. It's crass, and it's extremely rude. And notice this one doesn't ask for an excuse. So, clearly, these are semi-insulting. And Jesus wants his original hearers to get that. You guys have insulted the host. Okay, boys and girls, you don't know much about closing on a house by text. I get that, so I want to make sure you're tracking with me. So let's look at yours, okay? Your verse 17 through 20. Here's how Jesus says it in a way you can understand. On the day of the party... He started getting texts from people saying they couldn't come. One guy said, bro, maybe next time. Got to sharpen all my pencils today. A girl texted, I just got a a box of used crayons. I need to get them all the same length. See you well. Another texted, I've got something better. Not coming. S-Y-T. Okay, for those of you who are adults, ask a child. They'll they'll, they'll, they'll translate for you. They just don't want to come. They don't care about the host anymore. They don't care about sparing his feelings. We don't want to be with you right now. So why is Jesus telling this story? What's going on? He's talking to influencers in ancient Israel. These are the religious and political leaders in the land. They know the Old Testament. They attend synagogue. They say prayers. They have received the first invitation from the great host throughout the Old Testament. And now his servant, his very son, is right there in front of them giving them the second invitation to the banquet with his entire three-year ministry. To believe the gospel. I am here. The Messiah has come. Repent and believe the gospel. And they reject him. They don't want to come because they think they're doing okay without him. Their personal networking, their wealth, all give them a sense that they are enough without Jesus. Let me show you that in this text. 
So the categories of these excuses, the first one is the field. If you, if you bought property in an ancient Near Eastern village, you all of a sudden became part of the leadership of that community. You, you had land holdings. You were now a, a leader. It was a position of authority. This is enough because of status. The oxen would be able to work crops on more land. You'd have a bigger harvest. You'd have more money. This is being enough or feeling enough because of wealth. And then the wife, in the context, it's pretty easy. You feel enough because of pleasure. So what Jesus is saying here to the original hearers is that st your status, your status, your wealth, your pleasure, they all give you a sense that you don't need to respond to God's invitation. You're doing okay without Him. And so too for us, all these years later, we look to those same things, don't we? To make us feel secure, to make us feel valuable, to make us feel worthy. And in looking to those things instead of the Creator, we end up living outside of His blessing, outside of the fulfillment He offers in Jesus, all the while thinking that we're inside. See, Jesus doesn't want them or us to miss out on what God offers in the Gospel. And so He points out that not only are these supposed insiders actually outsiders, they're so far outside that they're actually upside down. So after the rejection in the text, starting in verse 21, the host sends his servants out to give the blessing to, of the feast to all these outsiders, the wrong people. Remember that description I read earlier about from the time of Jesus. They had changed the message of grace to one of complete exclusion. Jesus knew that, and so actually his list here of who's invited almost matches that text that we read earlier. Jesus says the same type of people that your religion says are uninvited are actually who this guy invites to his feast. All the wrong type of people. In verse 21, he invites the urban poor. Verse 23, he invites the rural poor. Both of those were considered dangerous underclasses at the time. They're brought in. And notice there's plenty for all of them at this banquet. I love that. There's, he, he had a specific banquet for certain people, and yet they rejected. There's enough for everybody. I love what Jesus is saying here. You can't stop God's grace. There's so much grace available that no matter what your own heart tells you, no matter what your culture tells you, no matter what that repeated failure with that besetting sin tells you, no matter what the inner accuser tells you, dear Christian, about you not being enough, there is grace upon grace upon grace in the gospel for those who are hungry. And unlike those who make excuses, whose status, whose wealth, whose pleasure makes them feel enough, the hungry respond. Those who have failed to be enough and are tired of trying, Jesus says, come. And they say, oh, thank God. There's two really amazing things here I don't want us to miss. First is in verse 23, that little phrase there, that my house may be filled. It's actually better, more faithfully translated my family is not complete. How glorious is that? That this host standing in the place of God in this story says, I need more people because my family is not yet complete. Where is everybody? I'll never forget, we were at a, we, had, we only had four children at the time and we were at a store and everybody crawled into the minivan. I started the vehicle, get ready to pull, pull away and Nikki goes, wait, we're missing one. And I looked around and I was like, uh, no we're not. She goes, where's the little boy? And I said, Joseph's not a little boy. She goes, wow, I just had this like, complete feeling that we're supposed to have a little boy in our family. And I just looked at her and said, 
are we having another kid? She goes, I think so. Benjamin, so glad you're here. Yeah, he knows that story. So, but that's what God is saying here. God is like, my family's not complete. Where's everybody? Wait, someone's missing. See, for a traditional culture like this that Jesus is talking to, one of the main sources of identity, one of the main sources of feeling worthy and enough was having a large family. And Jesus says to outsiders like us, God wants to get his identity from being your father. Somehow, Jesus says, don't push this too far, you'll probably get in trouble, but just take the emotion of it. Jesus says, somehow, the father's joy is wrapped up in people like us being part of his family. Isn't that an amazing thought? That the Son of God himself says, my family is not complete if you're not in it. you believe that? Do you hear the call of a loving parent that says, I want my house full of children and grandchildren. I want all my people here so I can rejoice over them. I want to lavish love on my people. That is what Jesus' desperate hearers need. I'm desperate that you hear that too. That God loves you and wants you to be in His family. That's what Jesus is trying to tell people here. Second thing, verse 23, notice that word compel. God wants His servants those who have aligned themselves with His promises, God wants to compel people to come to His feast of grace. Now, this has been misused, okay? Compel here doesn't really carry the idea of physicality. This is more like verbally, okay? This is, you know, convincing someone who assumes you're wrong. This is not, you know, pulling out a sword and say, be baptized or die. You know, sorry, Charlemagne did that, our bad. So, anyway, this is talking to people. See, in Jesus' time, and there's a specific idea here, in Jesus' time, an upper-class person, if they were to invite a lower-class person, the lower-class person would assume it's some sort of trick, and they would have to be convinced, compelled, argued into coming. And so, too, not only for our neighbors who don't know Jesus, but ourselves in our hearts, we have to be compelled to believe in the love of God, don't we? We hear about the love of God in Jesus Christ and we say, yeah, I believe in the love of God, but... And then we list our failures, right? Or we list where we need to do better. Or we list how we're not up to par. Or we list whatever. Because we don't really believe and we need to be compelled. You know, our whole culture is based on earning our worth, isn't it? Proving that we're enough through our efforts. And so the gospel of grace... The idea that the complete acceptance and forgiveness is available to us in Jesus. It sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? We're always like, what's the catch? What's the catch? It can't be that good. I beg you, believe the gospel. Oh, Christians, when we fall into that gospel, when we are compelled by the love of God to rest in Jesus alone, we will then live compelling lies before our neighbors. Early American theologian and pastor, scholar, Jonathan Edwards, he taught that the nominal Christian, the person who just kind of attends church but doesn't really have any depth throughout the week, they see Jesus as useful. But the true Christian finds Jesus beautiful. When you have been compelled by the love of God to believe the gospel, you will find Jesus beautiful too. 
Edwards goes on to say that it's the beauty of Jesus that makes Christians beautiful, and then we take that beauty to the world. Jesus makes us and our lives beautiful. And then we, in turn, do what? We make our families beautiful. We make our neighborhoods beautiful. We make our city beautiful. And in Jesus' name, that is compelling people to come to the banquet of God's grace. Oh, Christians, hear that. Beauty messes people up. When we live in the enoughness of the gospel, when we don't seek our foundation from our status or from wealth or from pleasure, when we live in the joyful beauty of grace, even in the midst of trials and conflicts, it's compelling to our hungry neighbors. Noticeably resting in Jesus as He's offered to us in the Gospel makes us beautiful. And in that beauty, others will see it and some will want that. As I said before, feasting is an idiom. It's a metaphor for the coming kingdom of God. The heavenly existence that Jesus is going to bring. What the Gospel will restore. And the metaphor is a feast. And notice here that as Jesus tells the story of that feast, it's all prepared. It's not a potluck. When God comes, comes to us in grace, we bring nothing but our hunger to be satisfied, and it is by His grace. God's banquet is completely about grace to outsiders. So I just want to wrap up by asking one question. Why should people like us receive an invitation to this feast? Because Jesus went first. He was labeled unclean and then drug to the septic pit on the edge of town to be crucified with the rest of the unclean garbage. Then on the cross, Jesus did not hear an invitation to come to the feast. Instead, He heard curses from others. And because He absorbed our sin on the cross, because He absorbed our selfishness, our envy, our anger, our rebellion, He Himself was declared impure before His Father. And so in His heart he heard the father's curse as he died for the sins of banquet attenders jesus the ultimate insider let himself become an outsider on the cross so that those of us who place our faith and trust in him could become insiders with him now long before hamilton sing about it jesus turned the world upside down do you want to be part of that family do you want to be part of that feast? Do you want to be brought into an inclusive family of grace and made beautiful? Then place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord and you will be in. Let's pray together. A gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that the hearing of your grace is it's too much. Your grace is just amazing and beautiful. And extravagant. And Lord, we admit that we just don't believe it. This is too good. We have to do something Father, I pray for those of us here who know you already that you would give us peace and repentance, assuming that we have to do something to earn, that we haven't done enough already. Would you once again give us the grace to rest in Jesus Christ alone? Lord, I pray for those here who are tired of striving, who are hungry for acceptance and grace for a Father's embrace. That you would once again show them the beauty of this gospel. That, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and shown to be crucified for sin and raised for new life, that you would be true to your promise. You would draw all people to him. 
even now, Lord, to do your work of building your church. We pray all this, Father, in Jesus' name.